Andrew Womack Ministries presents Part 6 in the Christian First Aid Kit, a six-part album. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. If you were not here this week, I've been sharing out of John 14, 15, and 16 all of this week. And uh, it's what I call a Christian survival kit. Jesus was speaking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion and trying to prepare them for the greatest crisis they would ever enter into. And he said in John 16, 1, I'm speaking these things to you so that you won't be offended. And yet the scripture says they were all offended and forsook him and fled. They didn't have to do that. He gave them the things that they needed to be able to be victorious in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. They did not have to experience the defeat that they did. Likewise, God has given us everything that we need. We don't have to fall apart like a $2 suitcase every time we come into trouble in our life. And yet the typical response of most Christians is that we do hit rock bottom. We just get devastated. And then after we are completely flat of our back, we try and crawl up and stand up and start seeking God for victory. It's a lot easier to defend a position of victory than it is to give up and embrace defeat and then start trying to claw your way back to victory. And so this is what you are supposed to do when a crisis situation happens. And I spent all of this week, uh, five sessions that we had, basically in John chapter 14. The only exception to that is that he started talking about how important the Holy Spirit is. And I took five different things that he said about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. And uh, yesterday morning, Saturday morning, I talked about how important the Holy Spirit is. Well, I want to just skip over to John chapter 16 and say some other things here about the Holy Spirit. I have a teaching set out here entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it goes into great depth. It's, uh, it's about six or seven hours worth of teaching on what I'm going to say here in just a few minutes. But in John chapter 16, let's go back and read verse 7. Remember that Jesus is speaking this to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. It was going to be a terrible time for them and he's preparing them and telling them how they can overcome and still be victorious. And so he says in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you. That means it's to your advantage, advantageous for you, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And I spent quite a bit of time yesterday talking about this, but it's actually better to have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us than it is to have Jesus in his physical body present with us here on this earth. And most people, that is just something that is hard to comprehend. Most people, if they had two doors up here that one of them you go through and you get to be with Jesus and you could walk with him and talk with him like the disciples did when he was on the earth or the other door is the Holy Spirit. Most people would choose following Jesus. Jesus says it's better for you. It's to your advantage if you have the Holy Spirit. And most people don't view it this way because we haven't respected and honored the Holy Spirit and we don't fully understand his ministry. Having the Holy Spirit indwelling you is better than having Jesus with you in his physical body walking around. Radical statements, but absolutely true. So that means we have a lot to learn about the Holy Spirit. And a lot of it is because the Holy Spirit's gotten a bad rap. He's been misrepresented. 
People blame the Holy Spirit for all kinds of stuff. And we have not fully appreciated it. For instance, in the next few verses, this is what I want to focus on. In verse 8, it says, And when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, typically, the way that this is taught, this is the way that I understood it, that the Holy Spirit is the one who nails you when you do wrong. He's the one that gets on your case. The Holy Spirit's the source of your guilt and condemnation and feelings of unworthiness. It's the Holy Spirit who's constantly just picking at you and showing you all of the things that you're doing wrong. That's what people are saying. That is not what this verse is saying. I'm going to go on to explain that. And then they'll say that he convicts of sin and of righteousness. And they'll say it's the Holy Spirit showing you that you're unrighteous. It didn't say he convicts you of unrighteousness. He convicts you of righteousness. It's amazing how religion just allows us to just switch these words and flip them so that even though we read it, we take it differently than what it said. The Holy Spirit does not convict us of unrighteousness. Somebody said, well, it just said that he convicts us of sin. I'm going to explain that. But he is not convicting you of the things that you're doing wrong. It's not the Holy Spirit that's showing you how sorry you are. He is not convicting you of unrighteousness. He is convicting you of your righteousness. And the next thing it says, and of judgment. People will say, oh, it's the Holy Spirit that showed me that I was wrong. And because of that, I'm unrighteous and no worthy, no longer worthy in the sight of God. And if I don't quit, God's going to judge me. That's not what this is talking about. The Lord knew that this was going to be misconstrued. So he explained it. It's amazing what would happen if we'd read things in context. If we'd use our head for something besides a hat rack, we could get some great revelation from the word of God. Look at this. He said that the Holy Spirit, when he has come, will convict the world, uh, reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he spends three verses explaining each one of these things. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Let me say some things here that you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to be willing to accept something different than what we've thought to be able to get this. But the Holy Spirit is not out here saying that you committed adultery. You didn't tithe. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And showing you all of these things. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, singular, one sin, the sin of not believing on Jesus. Period. That's it. The Holy Spirit's not the one who's convicting you of how sorry you are and everything you've done wrong. He convicts of sin, the sin of not believing on Jesus. Now you could look at this in two ways. You can look at it one way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says that Jesus is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice or the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world. It says 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
The Lord didn't just put a token amount of sin on Jesus and have him just bear sin in principle. Jesus took all of the sin. All of the sin. You know, we don't even have the capacity to understand that. If you were to take all of the sin of every person in this room and put that into one person and all of the shame, every rotten thing you've ever done and I've ever done, if, if Jesus had just taken the sin of the people in this room, that's unbearable. It's beyond imagination, but he took the sins of Hitler and Mussolini and all of the Pharaohs and the people that have done things throughout history and bestiality and he didn't just take it in principle. He took all of the sin. He became sin for us. That's what it says in First uh, Peter 2.24. He became sin. And Jesus took that and paid for the sin of the entire world. Not just the ones who God foreknew would accept him, but even lost people have had their sins paid for. So really... What is it that people go to hell for? They do not go to hell for their sins. They've been paid for. Sin has been paid for. Again, it doesn't say that he paid just for the, those who would accept him. It says, 1 John 2, 2, that he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world. People don't go to hell because of their individual sins. They go to hell for one sin, the sin of not believing on Jesus. It all boils down to God through love has already forgiven the sin of everybody. Now, will you accept Jesus, the one who paid for your sin and receive that forgiveness? And see, if you understand this, it makes, the, it makes everything really simple. Some people have come to me before and says, I just can't believe in hell because I can't believe that somebody who just wasn't the person that they should be and they didn't go to church and they didn't accept Jesus is going to suffer for eternity in hell right beside Hitler and Mussolini or whoever. It just doesn't seem fair. And that's because they are weighing people based on their individual actions of sin. There's a couple of things wrong with that. For one thing, we are comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves among ourselves, which the Bible says is not wise. Uh, if we looked at things from God's standpoint, one sin defiles us and the punishment of sin is death. The Lord told us that if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. So it doesn't matter if it's a lot of sin or a little sin. The punishment for sin is death. You've got to die. And so we, we, this whole comparative thing is wrong. But really, the whole issue isn't whether you've done a lot of sin or a little sin. The sin that sends people to hell is not their individual actions. Those have been paid for. What sends people to hell is that they reject or ignore the payment that was made for their sin. God sent his son because he loved us. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell, even though we deserve it. We deserve it. God wouldn't be any worse off if he destroyed the human race. If he wiped us out, it would have saved him a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of grief. The Lord wouldn't be less if he wiped us out. But God, because of his great love, limited himself, became a man, suffered for 33 years, suffered crucifixion, did all of these things. God Almighty became a man. Boy, that's hard to put your brain around. That's like me looking at ants and thinking how lost they are 
And so I become an ant, become one of them to help them. That's hard to believe that a person would be willing to leave being a person to become an ant. Well, that's not near as much as God humbled himself to become a man. He became a man because of his great love. God so loved the world that he gave. And he paid this tremendous price. A price that we don't even understand. We can't comprehend how much Jesus gave up to come and die for us. You could talk about it forever and we'll still never completely understand how much God loved us. God paid a price that was greater than anything any of us can imagine. And for him to do that and a person to reject it and say, I don't want it. Or a person to ignore it. Or a person to say, I don't think I have to have Jesus only. I'm such a good person. God's going to accept me because of who I am. I'm as good as Jesus. Or I just need a little help. I'm going to give 90% and just trust Jesus to make up the other. Any of those reactions, if you look at it, that that is the sin that sends people to hell. Not their individual acts of sins, but the sin of either rejecting or ignoring Jesus. If that's the sin that sends people to hell then you know what? There isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person for rejecting this awesome gift that God gave the world. For a person to just act indifferent and think, well, you know, maybe later I'll accept him. Man, if I somehow or another loved you enough that I would kill one of my sons and punish my son and put all of the stuff that you deserved on my son and then you just act indifferent towards that and you didn't want it, you reject it, or you say, well, it's not necessary, I don't need that. I guarantee you, it would cause my wrath to come against you. This is what sends people to hell. And so this is one way of looking at it is that when it says that he reproves the world of sin, the singular sin, because they didn't believe on Jesus, that's what it's all about. It's not the Holy Spirit nailing you over each individual act of sin. And then even after you get born again, did you know still the ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't to sit there and show you that you're doing this wrong and you don't pay your tithes and you should be in church. And all of this miserable and, and sense of guilt and unworthiness that we have, we ascribe that to the Holy Spirit. And that's one reason that people don't appreciate the Holy Spirit. Because we're misrepresenting Him. We're ascribing guilt and condemnation to the Holy Spirit. And if, you know, if, um, say for instance, if I somehow or another could follow you around and every time you do something wrong, I mean, if every time you do something wrong, and even if I could get inside your head, not just look at your actions, but if I could get inside your head and every time you think something wrong, every time you lust, every time you get angry, every time you do anything, if I was there to say, you're wrong, quit it. Don't do this. I, I guarantee you, it wouldn't take very long for you wouldn't like to see me coming. You wouldn't, I would not be one of your friends. If every time you did something wrong, I was there to slap your hand and no, stop doing that. You would not like me. If you have somebody who's just constantly pointing out all of your failures, I guarantee you, you don't like people like that. And this is what we've been told that the Holy Spirit does, but that's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This tells you, Jesus told you what he was sending the Holy Spirit to do. And it was to approve of sin. One sin, the sin of not believing on Jesus. He convicts you that you need Jesus in your life. 
That's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And even after you get born again, all of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is still centered around this same thing. You know what? If you're going out here and if you're doing dope, it's not the Holy Spirit saying, you're a doper. God's angry at you. God's mad at you. God won't bless you. God won't answer your prayer. No, you know what the Holy Spirit will do? He'll sit there and say, you know what? You aren't believing on Jesus. You aren't trusting Jesus. It's a positive ministry. Instead of sitting there and saying, you're angry and and God's upset at you, he'll say, why do you turn to dope when Jesus should be the one who helps you to cope with your problems? See, that's that's the real issue. I've never done dope. I can't say by personal example, but to me... I just don't understand. It's expensive. It is super expensive to be on dope. It damages your body. You do stupid stuff when you're high on dope. The only way that I can understand why a person would do dope or get drunk or any of these kind of things is because you are so miserable. You are hurting so badly that you will take that little momentary high And this feeling of escape to get away because you are so miserable, you just got to deal with it somehow. And if that is the real motivation why people do it, well, then the real problem with dope isn't the fact that it's expensive and that it's damaging your body and that you could kill yourself or somebody while you're on dope, although those things are bad. The real problem is that you are substituting substance for what God is supposed to do. God is supposed to be the one who's supposed to make you complete. He's the one. He's jealous. He wants you. He doesn't want you turning to a pill. He wants you to turn to him. And so the Holy Spirit isn't going to sit there and slap your hand and say, don't do dope. The Holy Spirit lovingly will tell you that you aren't believing on Jesus. Put Jesus, let Jesus deal with this part of you. It's the same thing if a person goes out and lives in sin and commits uh, adultery or something like this. God gave you a mate and told you that sex is a holy thing if it's done the proper way. But you know what? We lust and desire for something. We aren't content and we think that somebody else or some illicit sexual relationship will satisfy us. And we are turning to other things to fill this void that is caused in our life by a lack of relationship with God. A person who is committing adultery is a person that doesn't have a vibrant Good relationship with God. I can guarantee you that. They may know the Lord. You could be born again. But you are not in fellowship with the Lord. And that's the reason that you're hungry and looking for something. And you think that some illicit sexual relationship will satisfy. You know, to prove that, just imagine that you were, you know, going to commit adultery with a prostitute or something. And right before you climb in bed, you just grab her hand and say, let's pray and dedicate this to God. God, we want to glorify. You know what? You have to just literally exclude God from your life and get totally out of it to be able to do something like that. A person who is committing sexual sin is not in union with the Lord. You could be born again, but you're denying your relationship and you're trying to fill a void, a desire with the wrong thing. And so the real root of it goes back to that you aren't believing on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's not going to get on your case and be mean to you. And how dare you do this? And you could be running the risk of this. See, in a sense, the church, I believe, has made a mistake 
that the way they're trying to motivate people to holy living is to say that God's angry at you because of this. Or they will sit there and talk about the consequences. You're going to destroy your body. You could get sexually transmitted diseases. You could do this and this and this and this. And they talk about all of these consequences, which all of those things are true. You're going to be poor if you do dope and if you're an alcoholic. You're going to destroy uh, people's respect for you. You're going to lose your job. If you go out and commit sexual sins, you're running the risk of sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS. You could go on and talk about the consequences and it's terrible. But the real root of it is that you aren't trusting Jesus. You aren't letting Jesus deal with the problems. You're coping in ways that exclude Jesus from you. Let me show you a passage of scripture on this over in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to come back to these verses in John, but 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is where David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in chapter 11 is where he committed adultery. And chapter 12 is where God sent the prophet Nathan to reveal David's sin and reprove him of it. And he told this story about a man who had great wealth and all kinds of cattle and everything. But uh, he had a neighbor next to him that was so poor, all he had was one little lamb that he had raised like it was his own child. He hand fed it. And this was all that this man had. And when the rich man had somebody come to his house and uh, he wanted to provide a lamb and kill a lamb and feed the guy, instead of taking from all of his abundance, he went over and took this one little lamb from his poor neighbor and took it out of this man's arms and killed that lamb and used it to feed uh, his, his guest. And David, when he was told this parable, got so irate He said, the man that has done this thing is going to die. Plus, I'm going to make that rich man restore that man four times what he's stolen from him. And he just got mad. You know, there's a great, there's a lot of lessons to learn from this. But did you know the people who are the hardest on sin are the people who are living in it? You'll often find, I'm not going to mention names, but I remember one man who used to get on television and yell at homosexuals so much. And I'm against homosexuality. I'm not saying that it's the right thing, but he used to get so mad that you could see his juggler veins stick out and you could, he'd turn red and it turned out he was living in sin himself. David got so mad over somebody who did something unjust and what he got mad over was nothing compared to what he did. He was angry. And here's another truth. The scripture says that the Lord will have mercy, judgment without mercy on those who have shown no mercy. You know why I believe that Nathan didn't just walk in and say, David, you committed adultery with Bathsheba and expose his sin. You know, I believe God was giving David an opportunity. David, in a sense, was going to set his own judgment. Here was a situation. If David would have shown mercy, God would have shown mercy. But David prescribed his own judgment. He said, the person that has done this thing is going to die and he's going to restore fourfold for everything he's done. And you reap what you sow. 
And right as he was angry and yelling at Nathan that this man bring him before me, I'm going to do this. Nathan stuck his finger in his face and he says, you're the man. And then he reproved him and he says, boy, look at some of the things that the Lord said through Nathan to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Did you know that the scripture clearly states in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus was asked about divorce, Jesus said from the beginning, God never intended divorce. God only intended for one man to have one woman in one lifetime. That was God's plan from the beginning. And yet he allowed Old Testament men to have multitudes of wives. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, or either 700 concubines and 300 wives, a thousand total. That wasn't God's will. That never was God's plan, but God allowed it because of the hardness of people's hearts. He allowed them to divorce and remarry and do all of this stuff because of the hardness of their hearts. But that's not God's perfect will for any of us. God's perfect plan is for you to stick with one person for a life. That's his perfect plan. God gave David multiple wives, which wasn't his best. He gave him the wives of his master Saul. And he says here, even though that wasn't his perfect will, he says, if that was too little, I would have given you more. I'd have given you more wives. And then in verse 9, he says, wherefore... Hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Ittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife. And thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. This, and anyway, the Lord just goes on. But what I wanted you to see is he says right here in verse 9, and he says, you have taken the wife, his wife to be thy wife. And um, right here, oh, in verse 9, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife. Slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. It was verse 10. It says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. You know what the issue was between God and David? God is saying, David, you were nobody. When I sent the prophet to your house to anoint a king, your dad didn't even think enough of you to put your name in the hat. He had his six other sons there as potential candidates, but he put you out there with the sheep to take care of them because nobody thought you would be the king. And yet God looked over all of his six brothers and Samuel says, I will not sit down. Nobody is going to sit down until we bring David. They didn't have a cell phone to call him. He didn't have a car to drive there. It must have taken a minimum of 10 minutes out, 10 minutes back. It could have been 20 or 30 minutes out. And nobody, he wouldn't let anybody sit down because they were honoring David. Nobody was going to sit until the new potential king came in. 
And a person that his father didn't even honor him, had him out taking care of the sheep. He says, David, I took you when other people rejected you and I exalted you over your brothers. And I have made you king and I gave you everything. You were nobody and now he had riches. David gave over $20 billion worth of materials to the building of the temple out of his uh, government treasuries. And he gave over two and a half billion dollars worth of gold, silver, and precious stones out of his own personal bank account to build the temple. David was nobody keeping sheep. And now he became this fabulously rich man, the uh, mightiest person in the nation, exalted, prosperous. God is saying, David, I did all of these things for you. And if that wasn't enough, I'd have done more. If you would have asked, if you wanted more, I'd have done it. You know what upset God? Not the fact that he committed adultery with you, with um, Bathsheba and killed Uriah, although that's terrible. It was the fact that instead of being God dependent, David, who at one time, who had been totally dependent, wouldn't do anything, wouldn't avenge himself. He was waiting on God to promote him. David had gotten to a place to where now he was king. He could do anything. It says over there in chapter 11, when he committed adultery, it says now at the time that kings go forth to battle, David remained in the palace and he rose up off of his bed at eventide. If he rose up at eventide, that means he was sleeping during the day. He wasn't out doing what God anointed him to do. He wasn't leading this charge. He wasn't commanding the armies. He had become so prosperous that now he could send other people to fight his battle. He was so secure that he was sleeping during the day and he was bored. He got up off of his bed and started walking around and prowling at night looking for something. He was no longer doing what God called him to do. Did you know that the, your weakest place you will ever reach in your life is when you have great prosperity? Because in great prosperity, you tend not to recognize your need for God and you become self-sufficient and you become uh, liable, open to the devil. David, when he was in a strait, sought God with all of his heart and was humble. But when he became wealthy and powerful, he quit seeking God. And because of it, he went out and committed adultery and then murdered Bathsheba's husband to try and make it look like the child uh, came from his union with Bathsheba after the husband was dead, he took her and stuff. And so he committed murder trying to cover up his adultery. And out of all of these things, God said, how could you have done this and despised me? You know what really offended God? David, I've been faithful to you. And you just now are in a position where you could do things on your own and you quit relying on me. I'm no longer your friend. I'm no longer the one that you depend on. In New Covenant terms, this would be the Holy Spirit saying, you aren't believing on Jesus. You aren't trusting Jesus anymore. Now you're just doing things on your own. And that's what grieved the Lord. And David got this message because over in Psalms chapter 50, where he repented of his sin with Bathsheba, you can read that. And in Psalms 50, he says, O Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness in your sight. Most people would say, well, that's not true. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Ahithophel, Bathsheba's uncle. Or, excuse me, grandfather. You sinned against a lot of people. You hurt a lot of people. You did a lot of damage. 
But see, David got the message. He finally realized, God, I quit loving you. I quit serving you. I was out here doing things on my own because I could get by with it. And that's what offended the Lord. And, and this is what offends the Lord when we sin. The Holy Spirit may sit there and say, quit doing this. But it's not because he's angry at you over what you've done. It's because you aren't trusting Jesus. Instead of turning to the Lord, you're turning to a pill when you should be taking the gospel. Amen. Instead of, instead of letting God be the love of your life, you're trying to fill your desire to be loved with some illicit sexual thing or looking at pornography. It's not that God's upset with you. He's already paid for your sin, but he still doesn't like the fact that you aren't believing on Jesus. You aren't making Jesus. It's all about relationship. The Lord loves you. He's jealous. He wants you to be his. And the Holy Spirit is not out there just, you committed adultery and the wrath of God's going to come on you. No, it's more like, why don't you love God? Why don't you let God meet this need? This is destroying your life. You're hurting other people. All because of selfish things. And the Holy Spirit will draw you in a loving, kind way. It's a positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then going back to John chapter four, uh, 16, back to these original verses, once the Holy Spirit shows you that you aren't trusting Jesus, you aren't letting Him have the center point of your life. You know, before I leave that, let me just use one last example. That I had this tremendous experience with the Lord over here in Arlington, Texas, March the 23rd, 1968. And I fell in love with Jesus. I was already born again. But man, I just fell in love with Jesus. I could spend hours talking about it. Changed my life. Changed my life forever and ever. And then in 1969, I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And when I was in Vietnam, I had a guy that grew up with me. We were in the same church together, University Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. And we grew up together. We had known each other. We were in the same division in Vietnam. And this guy went over there and submitted to the temptations, got into the dope, into the drinking, sexual sins, and stuff like that. And to this day is, is messed up. He came from the same background. I came from the same place. But I had had this deal about... I, where I knew that God loved me. I had a love for the Lord. And because of that, when I was in Vietnam, I was tempted with everything that everybody else was tempted with. You know, they'd bring you back for stand down every six weeks and you'd have three days where the government would give you all of the booze that you could drink free. And they brought in Filipino women and they did shows and it was technically a show for entertainment, but they were all prostitutes on the side and they'd give you a bunker and all the free sex and booze that you could have for three days. And that's what these stand downs were, were just total orgies. And out of 200 people in our company, I'm the only man that didn't participate. The only man out of 200 that didn't participate. And there was a lot of temptation and, and just the the fact that I'm the only person, there was a drawing, there was a temptation. But I can tell you exactly what I was thinking. It wasn't. See, and the reason that a lot of people went ahead and gave in, this friend of mine that I grew up with, the reason he gave in is because you're on the other side of the world during Vietnam. For one thing, you may not live long enough to ever make it back home. So it's not going to hurt anybody. Who's going to know? Nobody's going to tell. These prostitutes aren't going to tell. Everybody else is doing it. The consequences were a non-issue because everybody was doing it 
And because of that, that's all that most people use to hold them in check is fear of getting caught, fear of shame, fear of punishment, fear of something or another. But you know what? With me, it wasn't all that. It was, man, God loves me. God has been so good to me. How could I do something like this and dishonor God after all he's done for me? And I was able to maintain my focus and not get into this stuff because of my personal relationship with God. The Holy Spirit was reproving me, not over these sins, but he was telling me constantly that God loves you. God wants you to be separated unto him. God doesn't want you to be doing these things. It wasn't a negative. It was a positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. Man, the Holy Spirit is there to constantly be drawing you into relationship with Jesus and constantly be telling you about how much Jesus loves you. Why would you go out and take something that is going to cost you money, ruin your health, cause you to act silly and stupid? Why would people get drunk and do this when you're going to face a hangover the next day and puke your guts out? Just what, what is attractive about that? I've never been there. I've never done it. Some people may think, I don't know what I'm missing. I'm glad I don't know what I'm missing. Mercy. What is attractive about that? The only thing that could be attractive is you are saying, I am so miserable. My life is so bad that 30 minutes of peace or an hour or two hours worth of being numb to the pain is worth all of the shame and hurt and stuff. But man, Jesus can supply every need that anything else would do without the hangover, without the shame. It'll make it better. And instead of the Holy Spirit saying, you sorry thing because you did this, he'll, t- he'll put worth on you and tell you you're worth more than this. God loves you. God's got something better for you than this cheap imitation. It's a positive ministry. And then after he shows you that about the problem is that you just aren't trusting Jesus. Why don't you trust Jesus? Why don't you let him fill that void? Why don't you let him take care of your emotions? Then the next thing he'll do is show you that you are righteous. He will convict you of righteousness. Right in the midst of your failure, right after you've done something wrong, he'll say, but you're still righteous. He'll show you that you are in right standing with God, that God doesn't hold sin against you, that he's paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even the sins you haven't committed yet have all been paid for. And he'll show you that you're righteous and holy. No amens on that one. People are thinking about, well, now wait a minute. I bet you every one of us have heard somebody get up in church before and say, you know what, I was out doing this and this and this. But the Holy Spirit just got on me and showed me how unrighteous I was. And he just wouldn't leave me alone and I couldn't get away from it. And then they finally stand up. I'm just sorry. And they repent. And they say, everybody, yay, praise God. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. What we should be hearing is somebody saying that, man, I was doing everything wrong. And I was messing my life up. And yet I turned to the Lord and he showed me how much he loved me. And he showed me I was still righteous, even though I had acted like a fool. And that I hadn't lost my right standing. And that I am the righteousness of God. Even though I don't deserve it, even though I've acted wrong, I'm righteous because of what Jesus did for me. Not because I've done everything right. Those are the testimonies we should be hearing. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show you your righteous position, not your sinful position. 
Now, again, he will show you things that you're doing wrong because he loves you enough that he doesn't want you to allow the devil in. But it's not a negative condemnation where he show, he's telling you God loves you. You're better than this. Don't do it. You've got a relationship with God. You don't need this cheap thing. You ought to fill that space with Jesus. And then he'll show you that you're still righteous. God hasn't lost his love for you. God's not upset because you've gone out and done these things. And then the third thing, it says he'll reprove the world of judgment. And the next verse down here in verse 11 says of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. This isn't talking about that because you've sinned and now you're unrighteous. You're going to be judged and God's going to reject you. It's saying, no, God will convict you that, you know what, God loves you. You need to believe on him and trust in him. You're still righteous. And remember that the one who's been attacking you and tempting you and trying to condemn you, he's the one that's judged. The devil is the one who has no right. When the devil is telling you about how sorry you are, just turn around and tell him about his future. Amen. Just remind him of what his future is going to be and remind him that you're the one that's sorry and you're the one that's not forgiven. I'm forgiven. Praise God. My sins aren't going to be imputed unto me. You're the one that's going to live for eternity in a lake of fire. Rub his nose in it. Tell him about his future. Condemn him. Amen. This is what the Holy Spirit will do. And it's actually a positive ministry. It's all about relationship. God loves you. He's jealous for you. God isn't telling you quit living in this relationship because he's mad at you and going to judge you and reject you. It's because he loves you. He made you for something more than that. There's people that just shack up with each other because they, they don't recognize marriage and they think it's not important and they feel like the God's on their case and constantly condemn them. God loves you if you're shacking up with somebody, but he loves you enough to tell you that, man, what kind of relationship is this where you aren't willing to make a commitment? You aren't willing to say for better or for worse, you're going to do it and so that you leave the exit door open so that you won't have any problems. Man, no commitment there. This is a sorry relationship. You've doomed your relationship from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit will tell you, don't do those kind of things. Not because he's mad at you, because he's a prude. It's because he loves you so much. He wants you to get into a relationship where you're willing to make a commitment to a person forever, for better or for worse. It's not about you satisfying your lust. It's about you yielding your life. And I'm going to serve you and, and be faithful to you and deny myself and honor you more than I honor myself. People that are shacking up with each other don't do that. I am right. And the Holy, that's why the Holy Spirit will tell you things like that. See, it's all positive. And if we understood that the Holy Spirit is your best friend, the Holy Spirit's not there to make you feel guilty and condemned. Let me use one last passage of scripture over here in 1 John chapter 3. This goes right along with what we're saying. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 18, it says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You know, this is an amazing statement if you'd stop and think about it. It says, and we shall assure our hearts. Most people think if you're right, 
If you're doing what's right, and if you were really in right relationship with the Lord, if everything was good, you don't have to assure your heart. You just automatically, everything's fine. This is saying we have to assure our hearts. You can be in right standing with God. You can be completely forgiven. God can love you. And that doesn't mean that you're going to feel love and that you're going to feel confidence and that uh, you're going to be void of all oppression and discouragement and condemnation. You have to assure your heart because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's going to be condemning you. People will be condemning you. Your own conscience condemns you. There's a lot of things coming against us. We usually say that that's the Holy Spirit that's doing all of this and making us feel bad, but it's not. You have to assure your hearts before him in verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. You know what this is saying is you can be condemned when God is not the one who's condemning you. And you have to assure your heart and train your heart to learn the truth. Well, I wish I had time to go into Hebrews chapter 10, that you have to enter into the throne room with your heart purged from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. We grew up, before you got born again, you were constantly separated from God and your own conscience. The conscience, it doesn't know good or bad or, I mean, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't think about edification and stuff. It just, this is wrong. It just tells you right from wrong and it condemns you constantly. And our old man, our old nature just beat us up and we lived with shame and stuff. We're all the time talking about it's the devil that's condemning me and stuff. With most people, the devil could go on a vacation. He doesn't have to do a thing. You are doing a royal job of beating up yourself. You just have beaten your, and I hadn't got time to teach on this, but the law, the Old Testament law, legalism is the biggest tool of the devil in a believer's life. It'll kill you. And religion is preaching law, 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 and it's making you feel guilty and condemned. That is not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to encourage you and build you up. He's called the comforter, not the accuser or the one who makes you miserable. He's the comforter. And we have to assure our heart. It's not the devil even that's condemning us. It's just the way we've been taught and this conscience, it just constantly is putting you down. And so if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. You really have to get to a place where you get over all of this guilt and condemnation. And the only way to do it is to take the truth of the word of God about how you've been forgiven of all of your sins. The Holy Spirit's not the one who's making you miserable and feel bad. The Holy Spirit's the one that's trying to build you up and tell you how much God loves you. God has something better than you living with prostitutes and something better than you going out here and trying to get your needs met by buying lottery tickets and gambling and trying to hit it rich. He's got a surefire system of give and it shall be given unto you. And he'll try and encourage you to give and trust God instead of get out here and roll the dice and try and get it through something. It just amazes me the way people think. I have, every once in a while I'll go into a convenience store and somebody, you want a lottery ticket? And I'll say, no, oh, you could win. And they start in on me and I think... Do you realize that the reason that they do this is because it puts billions of dollars into their pocket. The people who buy lottery tickets are losers. 
Oh, so-and-so won. One out of 240-something million people makes it, and the rest paid for that, and then the people who put on the thing made millions and millions and millions of dollars. The Holy Spirit will sit there. It's not that he's mad at you or things, but it's just like, man, there's something better than the lottery. Give and it shall be given unto you. Man, tithe and God will bless you and open up the windows of heaven and you won't have room enough to receive it. The Holy Spirit won't sit there and put you down for playing the lottery. You can play the lottery if you want to, but he'll sit there and convict you that, man, God's got a surefire system that guarantees you prosperity. Why don't you trust God? Why don't you honor God with the first fruits of your increase? See, the Holy Spirit's ministry is a positive ministry, not a put-down ministry, not a negative ministry. He is there. He is the comforter sent to convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Not all of these individual things, but just the fact that you aren't trusting Jesus. Trust Jesus. Rely on Him. Don't turn to these other things. Trust Jesus. It's all about relationship. And you're the righteousness of God. God loves you. God's not angry at you. He's not even in a bad mood. God likes you. God loves you. You're righteous. And it's the devil who's judged. God's anger is on the devil. He's not angry at you. He will never be wroth with you nor rebuke you, Isaiah 54 verse 10. Never. He's not ever angry at you. God's not mad at you. It's the devil who's under the judgment of God. You are God's child. This is the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. And many of us, one of the reasons we aren't excited about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is because it's been misrepresented. And we are thinking that this guilt and condemnation and sense of unworthiness and, oh, God is angry at you. And how could you ever trust God to do anything in your life? That's either the devil or your own conscience. And we've blamed the Holy Spirit for that. But it's not the Holy Spirit. Man, the Holy Spirit is your best friend. He's sent to comfort you. He's sent to build you up and encourage you and give you power. But you know what? You're going to have to sort some things out in your own understanding. You're going to have to quit accepting this sense of guilt and shame and unworthiness and and attributing that to God. It'll make you run away from God if you think that that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Man, the Holy Spirit is one that's building you up and telling you you can do it. He's an encourager, not a discourager. Man, God loves you. And the Holy Spirit is sent to reveal Jesus and to draw us unto Jesus and to tell you all of these things. You know, one last example here, and I'll quit with this. But when my kids were little, I remember one of the first times I ever let my oldest son take the car out on his own. And he was supposed to be home at 11 o'clock. And if you say 11 o'clock, he comes in at 1105, 11.10. 11.15. If I'd have said 11.15, he'd have been in 11.16, 11.20. It's just like whatever you do, it's just like they push it just a few minutes and things like this. And, you know, when something like that happens, what most parents do is say something like, how dare you be out this time of night? Don't you realize you could have had a flat? You could have run out of gas. This is when all of the weirdos are out. You could be mugged. Something could happen. And we talk about all of the consequences to those actions, which are true, and they do need to be aware of that. But you know what really upsets you? It's the fact that 
It is not your constitutional right to have the family car and stay out till 11. It was a gift. It was an honor that I placed on you. I trusted you. I honored you. And you despised me. That's what's really at the root of it. Now, you may mention these other things that are true, but you know what really upsets a parent? It's the fact that I'm honoring you. I'm trusting you. And you don't honor me. That's what hurts a parent. You know, if there's some kids in here, and if you don't understand why your parents are the way that they are and stuff, hopefully this will help you. You know, again, my mother and I had a great relationship. My dad died when I was 12, and man, my mother and I were close. And I remember my mother, I used to have to be home by 1030. And until the time I got married, if I told my mother I'd be home at 1030 or whenever, you know what, I was home 15 or 20 minutes earlier. And I think that there was one time I didn't make it home, and that was because I ran out of gas. Or no, I locked my keys in the car. And I, that's back before he had cell phones and I had to go somewhere. But I went, went to the effort to call her and let her know what was going on and why I'd be home. And it was just because I honored my mother. And I saw what my brother did to her when he was out all night and how she would sit up and cry. And I saw how it hurt her. And because of that, man, I never came in late. I never violated those things because I honored my mother and I didn't want to hurt her. And you know what? This is about our relationship with God. Some people think, well, God's upset because I I didn't pay my tithes. No, God, the thing that hurts God is why don't you trust me? I said that if you'll give me and honor me with the first fruits of your increase, I would do this and this and this. And you don't trust me. You don't honor me. That's what hurts the Lord. Not the fact that, you know, you know, people stand up here and say, if nobody gives, the church is going to go under. How are we going to pay our lights? And we use all of these different motivations. But the bottom line is, if you aren't giving 10%, the same God that says, if you'll confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. That same God who promised you salvation, promised you that if you give, it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And you're going to sit there and say, well, I'll accept this over here that will grant me my eternal security. But I don't trust you. I need this money. I can't give. And it's not that God's mad and the church is because the church isn't being supplied or whatever. It's because you don't trust him. And the Holy Spirit will convict you of that, not in a negative way to reject you, but in a positive way to say, come on, trust me. Try me, prove me, and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so that you won't have room enough to receive it. It's all about God loves you and He wants you to trust Him. And the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to bring you into relationship with Jesus. The only sin He's convicting you over is the sin of not believing on Jesus. You aren't trusting Jesus. And so you have to take a pill to go to sleep and take something else when you get up to get you going instead of trusting and relying on the Lord. That's what bothers the Lord. He he loves you. God wants you. He's jealous. He created you for himself. And if you can understand what I've talked about today, this could totally change your attitude about the Holy Spirit. It could make you elevate and value the Holy Spirit more than you have to the point that you could actually say, you know what, it's actually better 
to have the Holy Spirit with me than it would be to have Jesus in his physical body here. Man, to have the Holy Spirit inside just constantly telling you how much God loves you and how much he values you and how he wants you to be separated unto himself and how you're now righteous and you're the one who's in the position of honor and the devil's the one who's judged and condemned. To have the Holy Spirit constantly telling you that is just priceless. And yet many of us have embraced the condemnation in the name of the Holy Spirit and rejected this positive ministry thinking that God would never say anything positive to you at all. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, not the aggravator, not the accuser. Amen. Amen. And I tell you, you need this ministry, this positive ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. I encourage you to take these things and meditate on it. Like I said, I've got five hours worth of teaching on what I covered here in less than an hour. And so there's a lot more to it. But God, the Holy Spirit is your best friend. He's the best gift the Holy Spirit, that God ever gave this earth. And we need to pursue it and yield to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If there's anybody here today who doesn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to be born again. You've got to receive Jesus because the Bible says Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So you've got to receive the giver before you receive the gift. You need to be born again and have Jesus in your heart. And then Jesus told his disciples, he says, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Don't tell anybody about him being raised from the dead until you receive power from on high. And then he said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And when people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. Speaking in tongues is so powerful because it's, it's a way of bypassing the doubt and the confusion and the unbelief that's in your mind. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, when you pray in tongues, your spirit prays, not your mind. People don't always know how to pray. Matter of fact, I was talking to Oral Roberts last year, not long before he died. And he says he doesn't hardly ever pray in English until he's already prayed in tongues. He says, you don't know how to pray in English until you first of all prayed in tongues and cleared the air. You need the Holy Spirit to give you this ability to bypass the doubt and the limitation that's in your mind and pray from your spirit. If you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts, one of them is speaking in tongues. There's others, but man, what a great gift speaking in tongues is. If you can't speak in tongues, you need to receive that. You need to receive this positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. Is there anybody here today who would say, man, I need either to be born again or I'm born again, but I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand and I'd like to pray for you and help you. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111. Or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.